Welcome to the Kook Center Podcast, and here's your host. Welcome, everyone. I am your damn guide, Arnie. Now, I'm about to take you through a fully functioning power plant. So please, no one wander off the damn tour. And please take all the damn pictures you want. Now, are there any damn questions? Yeah, we're going to get some damn bait. Michael Preston. Vegas vacation. Always a guilty pleasure. Is it really a guilty pleasure if you just enjoy it? Like you feel bad for enjoying it? Wouldn't it just be called a pleasure then? This is going to go down a really bad road that I don't think we want to go down on this program. <laughs> I have to use incognito mode to talk about the rest of it. Welcome to the Coog Center Hour. Uh, episode 4 of Season 4. We are now in our last week without football. A thrilling development, if I do say so myself. Mr. Vince Grippy from the Spokesman Review going to join us next. Our own Brian Anderson coming up as well. We're going to talk a little bit about Luke Falk, go a little more in-depth there with the redshirt junior quarterback, uh, about what he can improve on from last year, what he's doing much better, yada, yada, yada. All that really good talk about quarterbacks that I am not very good at, but Brian is exceptionally good at. We'll get to our Dunderhead of the Week and then ask Michael anything. I had and was... Uh, going to talk about the preseason AP Top 25 in this space. And we'll still do that at the end. But on Wednesday morning, when one of your football players gets arrested for felony assault at a pizza place at 1.30 in the morning, and police think there's alcohol involved, And they reportedly punched a person because I don't know why. I mean, I just just the facts of the case we have with Shalom Luwani right now is that he was getting verbally abusive at the pizza shop and he punched a kid in the nose so hard he broke it. And right now, when you have Shalom Luwani being arrested for second degree assault and you have hanging over this team's head a brawl a month ago, almost less than a month ago, at a party where a kid had his jaw broken, regardless of what the circumstances are surrounding that party, the perception there is that the football players did it. Now, I'm not here to pronounce anybody guilty or not guilty, and nobody has been charged in that incident, and given the length of time it has taken since that has happened... My assumption would be in this case that nobody is going to be charged. That is not an investigation that is too terribly thorough. It's not an investigation, at least to my mind, that would ta- it would take you a month to determine if you want to recommend charges to a prosecutor about. Shalom Luwani made that easy Wednesday morning. He made that very, very easy for the police. By punching someone apparently in the nose so hard he broke it. Which elevates to the level of second degree assault. Now whether he will ever face a charge for second degree assault. Unlikely to my mind. He will likely plead that down. And face a misdemeanor charge. I don't know what kind of punishment in the court system he will face from that. But whatever it is. If these facts are true, and if what Pullman and what 
Pullman Radio has reported is true, that he deserves some punishment for this. And again, in these cases, we've seen time and time again that what comes out at first is not always necessarily the most accurate reflection of the truth. It was Daquan Brown at the Cub a couple of years ago, accused of striking a woman, find out later that didn't happen. Okay? But at just the base level, at just the base level, remove for a second whether or not Shalom Luwani is guilty of this crime or not. And again, I'm not here to convict him. I'm not here to... Even, I'm not even here to tell you what an appropriate punishment is at this point. Because I, I really and truly don't know. I, I do not know what an appropriate punishment for Shalom Luwani not long after his teammates are accused of doing a similar thing. I don't know what an appropriate punishment is for him. But at the base level, at the very base level, Washington State football right now has a perception problem. Be it manufactured by the media, I don't think it is. But right now, Washington State football has a perception problem. Twice in a month, players have been accused of assaulting people so severely, facial bones have been broken. And I, I, I remember being in college too, guys. And I, I can remember you know, thinking I'm an alpha male. And the unfortunate thing is you have to know as a football player that you are not, I mean, I mean, it, it is unfair to a point that you are not allowed to get into these types of altercations that other students would be allowed to get into. I mean, I, I'm sure there are assaults every weekend in Pullman that we either don't hear about because nothing ever comes of them or someone is arrested and we just don't, we don't hear anything about it because it's just Joe Blow student. But football players are visible. They are the arguably the most visible part of the university besides your football coach and besides your athletic director. And for this to happen twice in a month, we don't know who was involved in that fight at the party earlier this summer. But we know Shalom Luwani, or we think we know Shalom Luwani was involved here. So at the very base level, Washington State football has a perception problem. The perception of undisciplined players being violent. That is the perception right now, if you want to look at it from the outside in, that these players are violent. That is not a good perception to have. Now, it is good to have a football coach in Mike Leach who probably cares less about perception than any person on the planet. He does not care what you think of him. He does not care what you think of his punishments. And he's not going to tell you what they are. They legitimately do handle everything internally. And we will probably never hear what Shalom Luwani's punishment for this, again, if he's accused or if... What he's accused of doing is true. We will never hear about the punishment. Even if he is suspended for games, he will just not appear in that game and Mike Leach will probably not tell you why. There is nobody on this earth who cares less about perception than Mike Leach. 
And in a town like Pullman for a university like Washington State, that can work and is valuable. It's the chip on the shoulder. It's that that attitude we all have. We all come from a place with a chip on our shoulder. Nobody respects us. So we're going to handle it all ourselves. And we are very insular. We handle it all. We are all family. That is how we do things. And generally families, I know I don't. I don't care generally how I'm perceived by people. I am who I am. But I don't have, at least to my mind or knowledge, and please tell me if I do, a perception problem. And right now, that is what WSU football has. You can't have two incidents of football players accused of assault within a month, violent assault in a month, and not have that issue. I'm not saying that they need to answer for it. I'm not saying that Shalom Luwani needs to come out and apologize because I think some some people may want that. Some people view these guys as role models for kids. And I have a real problem with that considering they don't get paid like professional athletes do. And I even have a problem with professional athletes being role models for kids. But again, that's an entirely different subject. I'm not saying Mike Leach needs to apologize to anybody. But... There is that issue right now of people are... There is a perception problem. That is no bueno. That's not good. And again, like I said, you don't need to come out and apologize. You don't need to issue an apology for anything. And the fix to this is, in all honesty, to just stop doing it. I I mean, I know it sounds stupid, but that is the fix. I don't, I don't really know what else I can do, you can do to fix that problem. But you don't need to issue an apology. You don't need to be contrite about it. You don't need to do any of that. Because you don't need it to explode any more than it already has. But this was a problem when Paul Wolf was the head coach. And the team wasn't winning. And that's bad. It has generally not been a problem with Mike Leach as the head coach. And so to see it twice in the same summer with players he recruited, with his players, that is bad. And I'm I'm not, it's not an indictment of Mike Leach. It's not any of that. But right now there is a perception problem with WSU football. Uh, you know, suffice to say, this cannot happen again. I mean, it, it really is that simple. We'll wait and see what happens with Shalom. Again, I'm not going to speculate on punishment. I don't know what's appropriate. And again, if he's a if he's guilty of what he's accused of, then that's very bad. That's very very bad. But the larger issue right now is WSU is not perceived very well. WSU football is not perceived very well. And although Mike Leach may not care, his bosses probably do. And that guy who signs his paycheck, who was just hired in June, probably really cares. An awful lot. We'll talk to Vince Grippy more about that. We'll talk to him also about the AP Top 25 preseason coming out, which again, I'll give you my very short opinion on that before we get to uh, Vince. And that is that 29th is just about the Goldilocks zone for me. For WSU, I was probably fine with anywhere from about 
23-30. to 30. And yeah, it's at the lower end of that, but you play bad football for the better part of a decade. One 9-4 season isn't going to get you into the top 25 regardless of how many starters you have returning. It's I, I guess that it's just that simple for me. That that is really that is how simple it is for me. We'll talk to Vince more about that when we come back. Uh, we'll also talk to him a little bit about uh, what happened Wednesday morning with Shalom Mwani when we return on the Cougar Center. <laughs> Back here on the Coog Center Hour, we're going to talk to Brian Anderson, the godfather of WSU football analysis uh, here at Coog Center coming up. But first, I want to talk to the godfather of just knowing everything about WSU football, a man who sweat on Rogers Field with me as a young 20-something as well. We both... We probably should have worn compression shorts way back in the day, right, Vince Grippy? I mean, that would have been good at wicking away some of the out-of-shape big guy sweat, right? Well, I actually used a heck of a lot of baby powder, but we didn't oh. need to go there. And I, and I wasn't a 20-something. You were a 20-something. I there was a, a lot of 20-somethings around me, but I was like 20-something, 20-something, 20-something added up. Yeah, but you, you didn't complain about those early summer days when the sorority girls were walking by too much. I know that. There wasn't too strong an objection to that. I know that. Uh, <sighs> yeah, I wasn't smart enough to wear sunglasses, yeah. so I got in a lot of trouble. <laughs> Vince Grippy joining us here on the Cook Center Hour. And Vince, I want to we'll start with what I talked about uh, before you joined us here. Um, Shalom Luwani, obviously in a in, in quite a bit of trouble uh, this morning. And again, I'm you know we're not here to to make pronounce pronouncements of guilt, innocence, whatever. But as I said, it kind of feels like WSU has a perception problem right now that people perceive this program badly. Is that kind of the feeling you have of them right now? Well, I, I think that the problem WSU's always had, and it's had this since time began, I think, is that you're in a small town with three, four different police entities that, that patrol the town, and it, and it is a small town where everybody knows what happened. Mm-hmm. This guy, Whatever Shalom did, and, and I don't know, I don't know the facts, and I'm not really all that interested in, in really going into it really hard right now. Right. Let's just put it this way. If it happened for a player at SC or UCLA or Arizona State, uh, probably Cal or um, Stanford, a lot of these places, it, we wouldn't even have heard about it because it probably would have happened in a, away from campus and on an, with an entity that we never even knew about. And, and so that's part of WSU's perception problem. Everything that does happen badly gets reported. It, you know, and I'm, I'm not against that because I, I was a guy doing a lot of that reporting back in the day. And, right. And it, it is important, 
but it also sometimes seems worse than it is for other places. I'm mm. not I'm not condoning it, but I don't think it's any worse in a lot of colleges. No matter what kind of rankings you do, you know that are really fun on the internet about you know <laughs> the Philip Fulmer Cup or whatever you want to talk about. Yeah, no, I mean I mean I and I, we talked about that a little bit. Be fair or unfair is that these guys have that microscope on them a little bit more because they are athletes, and that if if this were just Joe Blow student at a fraternity doing this, you would never hear about it. But the unfortunate thing is, again, be it fair or unfair, these guys have that microscope on them. And after what happened a month ago at a frat party or a house party or whatever it was, it's just not a good thing to have happen again, regardless of what, like you said, that these things just come out a little bit easier in a town like Pullman, where you have Pullman PD, WSU PD, the State Patrol, and the Whitman County Sheriff's Office. Yeah, and, and and not to I'm not trying to uh, not trying to gloss over anything because with great opportunity, which being a football player is, comes great responsibility. And I know I heard that in a movie somewhere <laughs> once. And so, and, but you know, it just so happens we were taught. You asked about perception, and perception is is, is uh, guided by the amount you hear about it. And uh, so, I mean, I'm not saying that that Arizona State football players are any better or worse than Washington State football players when it comes to these sort of things. I just don't think you hear about them. That is to use Arizona State as an example, not to point them out. Right. Let's move on. We'll talk about something else and something else I talked about just very briefly uh, in the opening, but I wanted to talk to you a lot more about it. Uh, 29th, roughly thereabouts, uh, in the preseason AP ranking for WSU. I see a lot of people hand-wringing over what they perceive as that being too low. I kind of feel like that's right in the Goldilocks zone for WSU, especially after a decade of not being very good at football. Is, is that kind of the sense you have, that 29th is just about right? I think a lot of that hand-wringing has to do with where Washington ended up in the poll, which I do think is too high. But regardless of that, I think just outside the top 25 to start the season, probably just about right for WSU. Yeah, Let's cut touch on that real quick. It's the preseason poll. Right. It doesn't mean anything. It really, <laughs> well, it does mean a lot for guys that are good. I mean, that are going to challenge for a national title. Uh, Washington State is a much better football program. They are going to do some good things this year. I, I certainly believe that, but they're not going to challenge for a national title. I, I just right. don't see that happening. So it really doesn't matter for them. It, it doesn't. And, and actually, it doesn't really matter at all because it's just a poll. I mean, who – I understand. Fans get really into this stuff. They, they get really high when good things happen. They get really low when bad things happen and polls come out. And all of a sudden, you're ranked below Oregon, a team you beat last year. You're ranked below Washington, a team you had a better record than – and, 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 and Cougar fans will say, yeah, they beat us, but we had our backup quarterback, and he's gone now. We don't care. You know, that kind of thing. And, you know, you're ranked behind – Stanford, okay, they beat us last. You know, and you look at it and go, well, we're better than this. Well, who cares? I mean, really, yeah. honestly. Go on the field, beat Eastern, go down to Boise, beat Boise State, come home, beat Idaho, and all of a sudden everybody's going to say, oh, we're in the top 20. This yeah. is really cool. Maybe then they can start worrying about whether ESPN's going to diss them or not. Not come, not come to Pullman for uh, game day. That, that, you know, we can go into that. But go, to, <laughs> go down to Boise and get your butt kicked all over the place. Then maybe you were ranked exactly right. I don't, I really don't want to go over game day stuff again. Like I just I just either don't want them to make the decision, or I just either want them to do it or not do it. I just I I can't I can't do that again this year. But I, you like you said the preseason poll is just that 
It's a preseason poll, and again, it really only matters for the teams at the top. Arizona State was 15th in last year's preseason poll, dropped completely out of it when they lost to Texas A&M last year. So there isn't like, I mean, there is thought given to it, Vince, but there's not like a, a, a ton of thought because we haven't seen these teams play a down of football yet. Well, yeah, and you just it, it, and other everybody that does the poll, and there's hundreds of them, and I know lots of them, and, and they're all good people, but they all have different philosophies. I mean, AP gives you some guidelines, but there's some there's some real uh, wiggle room in those guidelines. And some people say, okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna put my poll together as where I think they're gonna finish the season because of their schedule and what they have, et cetera, et cetera. And other people put their poll together and say, well, this is where I think they are right now, you know. And so it, it makes a huge difference. It, mm-hmm. And as far as I'm concerned. If you think where Washington State's going to finish the season as 29th in the country, that's great because they have a tough schedule. The Pac-12 North is loaded. They don't have a lot of depth at the you know at, at some crucial positions quarterback, and they don't you know and, and they're and they're Washington State. You know they they have to have things right for them to be successful. Things broke well for them last year. They won nine games. They earned every one of them. Some of them on the last second, they, they, they was really good. But they, but they're also Washington State, and they lost a game last year that almost had. I don't know if you were one of them, Robert, but a lot of Cougar fans wanted to jump off the bridge into the Palouse River after they lost to Portland State. It would have been a little cold that day to do that. I think if it had been hot, I might have thought about it. But like freezing and cold and raining, that that's that's not appealing to me. Um, yeah. We talk about like you know, and I think the nice thing is is Vince is we can talk about this kind of thing and have a debate about it and yell at each other about it on Twitter or wherever. It's nice to be talking about that considering where this team was just a few years ago and the direction they're going. I think we all like the direction of this team on the football field, even just compared to the year before last where you go three and nine after a six and seven season, wonder what happens. And all of a sudden you flip the script by six games it's at least nice to be talking about this kind of stuff, isn't it? Well, when was the last time the Cougars were ranked in the pre- AP preseason poll? Two thousand. Believe- yeah, it was a while. Yeah. Yeah, it was back when Bill Doble was the coach, and they were just coming off their ten win seasons. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's been that long, and and rightfully so. I mean, rightfully so, because they have gotten to the position now where they really do have, boy, better players. It's mm-hmm. as simple as that. They have more people in their program, especially on the defensive side of the ball. I know everybody loves to talk offense because it is the air raid and it's what they do. But boy, I, I just last year I was impressed with the speed of the defense compared to some of the defenses I saw in person every day for five years. Mm-hmm. And uh, I'm even more so now. I think they've even gotten faster. And and, and that's one thing I, I love about Alex Grinch's idea of defense. And, and I because I buy into this completely. You've got to be faster than the other team. I don't care if they're bigger. The only team that's really going to hurt you in this conference because they're bigger than you is Stanford, anyways, and maybe Washington a little bit. But but Stanford is is, is you know you got to they're going to make it a mono all mono game. Everybody else pretty much tries to beat you in space. Mm-hmm. You know, especially when you're not playing SC, which they don't do this year. So that that makes it a lot nicer. And and they 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 fill those spaces a lot better than they used to. I mean, Dion Buchanan is one heck of a NFL player, but he was a safety at Washington State. He can't play safety in the NFL. He has to play linebacker because he's not mm-hmm. quick enough. You know, and the guys I got now, uh, say what you will. I don't. I mean, I don't know what his status is going to be, but Shalom Luani is is he makes he makes things happen because of his speed. Yeah. And he did at the, at the beginning of last year. He was he started off playing slow, and in the last two thirds, three quarters of the season, 
he, everything clicked for him. He, he got acclimated and he played fast and they played fast on the defensive end. And it's, mm-hmm. it's impressive. It, and, uh, they have more of the same this year, even up front, they're fast. And, and uh, it's a lot of fun to watch. I think if I'm a Cougar fan, I'm going, wow, this is different. This is back like the Palouse Posse days when people could run. <laughs> yeah, well, and I mean, you, you talked about when you were covering the team for five years, and I can remember watching USC walk out onto the field in Martin Stadium. I think it was in 2008, and you just looked at the difference, and it looked like a, you know, a college team in USC, and it looked like Washington State was putting a junior varsity high school team on the field just size and speed-wise. is I, I, I've always I've kind of wondered this a little bit. Do you think it's a combination? Do you think it's more the coaches recruiting guys? Is it the new facilities? Or is it just kind of a combination of both of those things, that confluence that's making these things so much easier to get these guys to Pullman and the fact that they are winning a little bit more? Uh, boy, I, I think I go with coaches first because – First and foremost, the offensive system is going to attract cer- a certain type of player. Mm-hmm. Um, the, it, it attracts excellent receivers. They, their receivers are better than they've they've been as a group. They just keep getting better, and 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 that's 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 impressive. They've had great receivers at Washington State, two or three of them every year. I don't care for how long you want to go back. You can go back years, and they've had great receivers at Washington <laughs> State. Now they got eight, nine, ten guys that are really good. Mm-hmm. It also attracts big offensive linemen, guys that may not play at other places, but fit what they want. Athletic guys that they put weight on that uh, they they feel like can can operate in space that may not work at other places. So that's yeah. that's good. Then on the defensive end, uh, Joe Salavea has just it's it's a difference. Him and, and Jim Maestro and and all of them. I think they just work their tail off and they've identified what they want, which is which is so important. And they go out and get it. If you're undersized, but you can run, they're going to go after you. If a guy's six foot three and can really run, he's going to go. I mean, he's going to get offered at SC and Alabama and these places. But if he's five eleven and can really run, Washington State goes after and gets him. Yeah. And they beat other schools for him. And uh, and 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 that's uh, crucial. They're they're identify who they need. They go all over the country to look for guys. I can remember when Bill Dobe would go to Texas and people would get upset. Paul Wolf dipped into dipped into Florida because of some connections there. People got upset. Oh, are you bringing these guys in? Well, because you got to go where the players are. Yeah. And that's, and this, and this group is doing the same thing. They're going to Florida. They're going anywhere they can go to find talent. And, you know, of course, as, as Mike Price used to say, you get your head and your heart from, uh, you get your, uh, your, your head and your legs. From, I mean, your strength from Washington, you get your speed from California and, and they're still doing that. But, Honest to goodness, I just I think they recruit their tails off. Does the new facility help? Well, it helps in one way. It kept you up with everybody else. Right. Right. I think the other. I want to talk about the uh, the other element of that too, Vince. I've I've heard this kind of compared to Tony Bennett in a way that the way he would recruit and his system, where he wasn't, you know, he wasn't necessarily looking for the most athletic guys on the planet. Although Kyle Weaver had a cup of coffee in the NBA, and Derek Lowe was at least a fringe. NBA player and Taylor Rochester still playing overseas but he went after guys that fit that system that worked well in Pullman because these guys were overlooked that's kind of what you have to do to be successful in Pullman at football isn't it yeah I've been banging this drum for a long time and that's that's one thing I thought Wolf had going for him a little bit Paul Wolf did is that his offense under Todd Sturdy was 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 you know it wasn't 
air raid, but it was different, and it was and it was pretty darn effective. I mean, even when they were bad, their offense. The first year, of course, they just didn't have any players. But as by the time the fourth year came along, the offense was seventh in the nation. You know, right. And 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 that's that's what you have to have. You have to. I, I really believe this. And I, John Chaplin won, won Pac-12 track titles because he had a he had a did things different than everybody else. He went out and got Canyon runners and then worked from there. Um, Bobo Brayton won Pac-12 North baseball titles because he went out. And he got hard-working, salt-of-the-earth guys that nobody else, I mean, some guys wanted, but he really got, the core of his team was just really solid baseball players. Mm-hmm. Um, Tony Bennett, basketball, George Raveling. Let's go back to George Raveling. He won on the basketball court because he went out and, and recruited African-American players that nobody else wanted at a time. That, right. that it was, it was, it was, he was able to get players uh, because of the way he played and who he was. It's, it's, it's great. Uh, we all know what uh, Calvin Sampson's uh, shtick was, and you know, it got him in trouble with the NCAA. And then, and then Tony Bennett came along, and Dick actually set the foundation. They got players that nobody wanted. Mike Leach is doing the same thing. Mm-hmm. I, I don't want to say nobody wanted, but were like you said, overlooked or just fit their system better than anybody. Look at Aaron Baines. I mean, really, honestly, did anybody really think when Aaron Baines came to Washington no. State from? From Cairns, Cairns, uh, uh, Australia, that he was going to be an NBA player for a long time, and 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 actually dominated times in the Olympics, but he did. You know yeah. that's who he became. And so Mike Leach is doing the same thing. He's he's offensively he identifies guys that fit his system. He it doesn't matter whether you're a quarterback, running back, uh, receiver, or lineman. He he has certain certain guys he wants, and he goes out and gets them, and and they come to Washington State. Defensively, they have a system now that they're really really happy with, and and it's what everybody does. But they, they he's smart. He's Mike's smart. He's paying Joe a lot of money to stay because he's a heck of a recruiter, mm-hmm. and you know. It's going to work for a while because they've built some depth. As long as as this group stays together, the coaching staff stays together, it's going to work. Uh, there's going to be ups and downs. Heck, it's you know, if if the God forbid Luke Falk goes down in the second game, this is going to be a tough season. Mm-hmm. You know, it's just it just will be. It's just the way it is. It's it's hard to have depth at the quarterback position at, at anywhere nowadays because you don't right. you don't become a starter. You decide I'm going somewhere else where I can start. Barring, uh, we'll close with this, Vince. Barring, you know, major injuries like you just talked about, anything like that. Uh, what are your expectations for this team this year? Because I have my expectations of roughly about the same number of wins, but I think they can get into double digits. And we're going to find out a lot about this team in the first six weeks because those first three conference games are so, so crucial, especially the first two against Oregon and Stanford. Because if you don't get at least one of those, you're out of the division title race and you can forget about the Pac-12 championship altogether. What are your expectations kind of of this team well, I, here in 2016? I think they could, if the, if they stay healthy, they could actually be better and may not have as good a record. I just think this, the schedule's tough. I, yeah. I, I just, I, the North has gotten better. I, I think Oregon is underrated. I, I believe that. I, uh, I've seen Dakota Pruka play. I've seen, I, I think he, he may not be the most well-liked guy in the program, but I think he's pretty good and it doesn't really matter. I, I, the other side of the ball, I think Oregon's gotten a lot better just because they went out and hired a defensive coordinator knows what he's doing. And then uh, I think Washington is improved barring injury. They're going to be tough too. I mean, I, I don't think anybody, anybody can uh, argue that point. Stanford, I, I, I believe Stanford's taking a step back. You don't lose a quarterback. I mean, you don't go from Andrew Luck to Kevin Hogan to 
whoever and not, yeah. not take a step back. And they're a team that really needs to keep Christian McCaffrey healthy to have an offense because their defense is, is replacing a lot of guys. So I see them finish in third in the north. I see Washington State finish in third in the north. I actually see them finish ahead of Stanford. I, I really do think Stanford's going to yeah. take a big step back. And, and that's fine. I mean, if you finish third to north, beat Washington, find a way to beat Washington in the Apple Cup. That's a good season. Yeah, you know, win eight, win eight games, maybe go to a decent bowl again in a warm weather place, maybe a little nicer place, and uh, <laughs> and you end up with nine wins again. And then, how can you not like that? I mean, as a as a mm-hmm. Cougar fan. Uh, the, then the whole question is, what, what do we do next year? Well, worry about this year now. Just yeah. enjoy the. It, it's a tough, you know. Really, honestly, Eastern's one, Eastern's the, probably the best. Want to be one of the best FCS schools you could play. I mean, they always give FBS schools tough. But they play them tough, no matter yeah. who it is in the factor. They're going to play it tough. Boise State on the road is hard. I mean, it's a weird place to play. It's a hard place to play. Mm-hmm. And then then you have the Idaho game, which is the backyard brawl. And we've seen this in the past, not be very happy. I mean, the coaches, <clears throat> neighbors as they are, as they are uh, still didn't get along very well the last time they played. <laughs> I wonder whose grass is cut better. I just want to know that. And and for your warm, <laughs> your warm weather bowl, I'm not. I'm just. I'm just saying the Alamo bowls on my birthday. That's that's all. That's all I'm saying, and it's in Texas, so it'll be warm. I mean, that's—I don't think that's a oh, totally unreasonable request. I don't think San Antonio can get pretty cold in the winter, pal. Oh, don't, don't tell me. Oh, man. Well, okay, well then, what, what's that? What's that bowl game in the Bahamas? I don't care who's actually supposed to play in it. I say we go play in that game, or they just give us the the Hawaii Bowl back. That would be preferable, I think. I, I just don't understand why people don't root for the Las Vegas Bowl. I mean, that to me is. Oh well, yeah. no, no. <laughs> that's where I trust. I say that's trust where you me, go. you, you, me, and Musburger are hoping that's what it ends yeah. up being. If I could, if I could part, if I could party one night with you and Brent Musburger, I think my my life would probably be complete at that point. Well, well, you and Brent would be going on after about eight o'clock because I'd be done by then. Oh no, you wouldn't. No, no, I would drag you out, Vince Grippy, (laughs) our one of our favorite guests here on the Cube Center Hour. Thank you, sir. Anytime, Michael. Buy some sunglasses. Back here on the Coog Center Hour, we just visited with Vince Grippy of the Spokesman Review, the godfather of all things WSU football, and now we visit with our, he's not really old enough to be called a godfather of WSU quarterback expertise, but he is a WSU quarterback expert, our own Brian Anderson. Uh, you're not you're not like a godfather of, of football like Don Corleone or anything, right? I wouldn't even say I'm an expert, man. That's like way too generous. Well, just, 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 just let me just, just, uh, cut it out, man. Let's just—we're trying to—we're trying to get listeners here. Um, so, 
I wanted to get Brian on. We talk a little bit about um, Luke Funk from last year because obviously we hear so much about how good this guy is, and I think a lot of that praise is deserved, Brian. But we don't you know, we don't hear about what specific things he improved because the Luke Funk we had at the beginning of the year was very different than the Luke Falk we had at the end of the year against the one half he played against Colorado. I'm kind of not considering the Sun Bowl because that was such a weird game anyway, but we got a very different Luke Falk over just a 10 or 11 game period. Yeah, well, when you look at it, uh, going into the start of last season, he had six games under his belt, and three were pretty good. One of them really good against Oregon State. He lit them up. But then he had three like pretty mediocre or you know, might even kind of lean towards bad uh, performances, too. So he's, you know, kind of a mixed bag of, of uh, what you're going to get. So as he started gaining more experience throughout the season and everything, he really uh, kind of grew into that role. And that's a lot of what you see with uh, previous quarterback history with Coach Leach is that, you know, the more time and experience they get in the system, more in a rhythm that they're going to be able to get. And, uh, you know, by the end of the season, uh, Luke was definitely, you know, one of the best quarterbacks in the conference and, you know, kind of setting himself up to be one of the best quarterbacks in the nation this year. I know we talk about a lot. I think in a lot of systems, quarterbacks just kind of need that experience. And I, I that's a narrative that we hear uh, pretty frequently with young quarterbacks and they're adjusting to a new system. But, I mean, there is just kind of that extra special. It really does mean a lot more in the air raid because it really is all about repetition and once you've gotten those repetitions it almost just kind of becomes second nature sure sure and you know the other thing that kind of separates Lou from a lot of other quarterbacks uh at the college level is um you hear Trent Dilfer and Jordan Palmer Carson Palmer's brother that do the elite 11 camps you hear them talk about uh three specific quarterback throws uh, you got to be able to put it on a line. You got to be able to layer it, and you got to have touch. And they kind of—I um, think it was the Audible podcast with Stu Mandel and Bruce Feldman uh, last week, where Jordan Palmer talked about you know how that's kind of analogous to a golf game. You know, you got to drive, chip, and putt if you want to be a good golfer. Mm-hmm. Same with being a—you know—same with being a good quarterback. And that's kind of where uh, Falk's just completely separate from another guy that, that you could say has more arm talent. Um, you know, if you can get away with using that sort of descriptive language in Josh <laughs> Rosen, or maybe a stronger arm uh, with Browning over at UW, uh, what Fall can do layering a defense and get the touch passes down and his accuracy is just, you know, right now, right now, quite a bit better than some of the other guys around the country, and it allows him to just, uh, you know, really put these receivers into open spots and give them a chance to make plays downfield. We talk about getting receivers in open spots, Brian. I think that was kind of a constant uh, bugaboo with him uh, earlier in the season, especially against Rutgers. I mean, the touchdown pass Gabe Marks caught where he just got obliterated. I think if Luke throws that ball just a beat or two earlier, he at least saves Gabe from getting absolutely annihilated at the pylon. Now, Gabe's arguably the most exceptional receiver in the conference, so he caught that and scored easily, but he really got better at that about putting his receivers in a good position uh, towards the end of the year and just another one of those things that really improved. How important is that for receivers to just be put in a good position because you can see other throws throughout the year where he just he makes it so easy on them to just pick up yards or put the ball in the end zone. Yeah, that, that 
definitely. I mean, that that's a pretty good example, and there are some other ones of uh, it's either going to be caught by your wide receiver or it's going to be an incompletion, and that's kind of where, you know, plays on the sideline, that's what you want them to be. You know, you had a bunch of those to Dom, too, where it's a fade over the outside shoulder, and Dom's either going to make that grab uh, in between the, the sideline and the numbers, or it's going to go out of bounds. You know, there, there's just no shot of a defender getting anywhere near it. Mm-hmm. Um, the other, you know, the other part of that is like uh, what he can do with River Craycraft at Y or one of the guys that they got running at H, you know, whoever that ends up being. Uh, when they start coming over in the middle on crossing routes and, you know, if it's a zone coverage, they're going to sit in a zone and then that's where it's important for him to be able to hit the right shoulder so that they can just catch and turn and get upfield and do an open space rather than kind of leading them into whatever zone defender is trying to, trying to crash on the play. Mm-hmm. And yeah, so you'll, you'll see a lot of that sort of stuff with, uh, White Cross and River Craycraft, especially like they've gotten really, really adept at finding those spaces in the middle of the field. One of the other things he did, and I noticed, I noticed a big difference. And I think a lot of other people did too, was at the beginning of the year, he was holding onto the ball, uh, for a really long time, and and I I don't think my observation, <clears throat> excuse me, was was good enough to tell whether by later on in the year he was just finding the open receiver quicker, or whether he was truly just okay. I got nobody. I'm throwing the ball away. But that's another thing that from I you know especially in that Rutgers game when he was just holding, 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 holding on to the football. Later on in the year, he was that ball was coming out a lot quicker. Did it have more to do with just? finding the open receiver quicker or was he just recognizing when he didn't have the time and just getting rid of the football? Well, I think that that just comes from the confidence that you get from Bill, from uh, all those different games. You know, the game, mm-hmm. the game experience is going to eventually make you confident. And then when you have that confidence, you're able to be more decisive. And I mm-hmm. think that, that was kind of a little bit, <clears throat> that was a little bit of an issue in the uh, non-conference games last year. You know, uh, Jeff and I, Jeff and I kind of noticed it after the Wyoming game, and I think that that's when we started, you know, doing a little stop timer and on his passing and just kind of thinking, like, this is taking a little bit slower than what we were seeing. Um, and the other thing that kind of uh, dovetails into that as well is, like, uh, I, I don't think that they ran four verts more than, you know, a handful of times maybe in their first uh, few games, even, like, going into Oregon. Mm-hmm. And... And uh, we we did kind of chart pass completions, and, and I think we called them shot charts or something, just kind of showing, like, where the receivers were catching balls. And the majority of them were 15 yards in. All right? So that's, that's in front of a safety, just where they line up pre-staff most of the time. So, I mean, it was all just intermediate and short stuff, and they never really stretched the field. And then... You know, you move later on in the season, you start seeing them attack downfield a little bit more, and I think that that also plays into you know just being more decisive in the pocket and being more aggressive and confident mm-hmm. in what you're doing. And, and you know, that, that's all the sort of stuff that we saw from Clark as he just kind of matured into the role, and you know, eventually just took it over completely. Is that something that you think they'll do a little bit more of here early on in the year, Brian? Because I know, so like you said, they were a lot more conservative, or Luke Falk was a lot more conservative uh, at the beginning of the season. Is them opening things up early in the year a little better for him? Just to, you know, you can say what you will about getting him into a groove with, you know, those short to intermediate passes, but is it almost better for him to just have the full playbook wide open first thing and just start throwing deep balls? 
Yeah, well, I, I don't think he, he wasn't, he certainly wasn't limited by a, a playbook or anything. Mm-hmm. What, um, what they'll end up doing, what they'll end up doing, and, you know, I would assume that this is what they did for him last year, is they develop a specific game plan for the opponent that week. And that'll be, you know, a subset of all of their plays, right? Right. And, and I think, um, if we watch that Pac-12 Network, uh, camp show that they did last week, you know, and they, they did that little mm-hmm. special on him where he's just like visualizing the play calls that week for that opponent, you know, on an audio recording with his headphones in. Yeah. Um, so he had, you know, he had the playbook and everything at his disposal. It was just when you get in those situations, uh, he's given like almost complete autonomy of the offense out there. So he's going to go with what he's confident in, what he feels comfortable in. You know, if it's third and five, maybe he's going to throw something at a double slant or, you know, do something a little bit more intermediate. And now when he goes out there and he's in a third and five or something and he sees that there's a, you know, a complete open receiver outside that, you know, it's not going to get five yards. It's going to get 25 yards. And that's just as easy to complete. Um, You know, so we saw a little bit more of that from him uh, towards the end of the season too, where when he'd get in those situations and he'd get the offense set up in the play, you know, he was confident in those more aggressive um offensive plays and then you know just just trying to get the small little chunks that he needs mm-hmm. you know just taking whatever the easy incom- the easy completion would be and sometimes that is the you know the more aggressive downfield play will be an easier completion something else i wanted to talk about brian i know we've talked about this before but i think it's worth emphasizing again as you talked about the autonomy that falk has with this offense and it's that Mike Leach gives him a play call, and you can see on the sideline when he points to his head, what he's saying is, you've, you've talked about this before, he's saying, think about, right? He's telling Falk to think about something, and he's giving him other signals, but if Falk gets out there and he wants to change the play, Mike Leach is largely fine with that because he said in the past, look, I'm not the one behind the center looking at the play. If he sees something that's better than what I gave him, go ahead and do it. Yeah. Yeah, they, uh, you can even see a mouth think about sometimes mm-hmm. if you're good at lip reading and the camera's on him. Um, yeah, so a, a lot of the plays will come in and it'll just be suggestions like that. You know, he won't even give him a set play. He'll just tell him to, you know, think about one or two different sorts of things and then Buck will get to the line of scrimmage and, and he'll get up and go. Uh, you know, and that, that includes, like, run game stuff. Uh you know, he's almost entirely responsible for putting the offense in, in a, you know, good run game down. And I think that, you know, that was a little bit of an evolution for him last year, too. You know, I think he got really, really good at it towards the end of the season. And you can kind of see that from the running back pers- uh, production, too, last year, which, mm-hmm. I mean, it jumped up by almost two yards of carry. And it was way more explosive than it had been. And... You know, a lot of that is the running backs getting better and, you know, credit needs to go to them. But it's also a fault recognizing, you know, where the good rushdowns are and, and putting the offense in a good opportunity to take advantage of it. I think we're looking, when we look forward to 2016, Brian, we see a guy who's now got, I think, my back of the napkin, Matt, that's something like 17 games worth of college experience and a guy who is on a lot of watch lists this year and who made a lot of improvements this year. Is there anything else that he can do this year specifically to improve on for you that 
would just continue to make him better or does he already do enough that you know he, he's pretty much is what he's going to be at this point but are is there anything that he can do a little bit better even uh, compared to last year you know it's yeah that's tough to say when you're wondering like what's better well right you know better for winning college games you know I, i'm not really sure like he he was just exceptional last year at uh you know, you want to talk about like clutch and all those sort of things, um, the, you know, intangible sort of things that nobody can really measure that well. Um, it seems like he's got that down pat. Uh, if you want to talk about better as becoming like a better pro prospect, which is kind of where these quarterback evaluations get when you start getting upperclassmen um, returning, right? It's all, it's not, they aren't being evaluated anymore. Like how good are they you know, for their college system, it's how mm-hmm. good will this translate to the NFL. And so with that, I think, um, you know, he, he needs to probably be a little bit more aggressive downfield even than what he was. Uh, the 7.1 yards per attempt, uh, the air raid, the air raid quarterback's all he's going to have low-ish yards per attempt. But um, even, even that could be, you know, up, you know, by just completing even one or two more explosive, you know, 30-yard pass plays per game than what he was doing last year. And honestly, that'll, you know, that'll help out Gabe Marks, too, a lot of mm-hmm. his, uh, you know, Bolitnikov watch list sort of thing. Um, you know, the big knock on him has always been the yards per catch because they, they just look at it and go, well, look at these yards per catch. He's just a product of catching a lot of balls. And, you know, the, there's arguments for and against that, you know, but a lot of those were screens where he caught the ball behind the line of scrimmage and then gained seven yards. Right. You know, and then that comes up, that comes up as like a five yard reception or something like that. And it knocks him, you know, it knocks him down in those sort of cumulative average sort of statistics. And, you know, if they can just, if the offense can just get a little bit more explosive, you know, by, by one or two, maybe three, uh, play the game, which really isn't that much of a change in what they were doing. Um, I, I think it'll help them both out in, in those just big overarching, what are their statistics, how will they translate to the next level sort of analogy. I think they should just have an explosive play on every play. That would that would help tremendously. I think. I think that I, that that would be the way to go for me. I think just just throw the damn ball eighty yards and get a touchdown on every play, and let's just all go home happy and golf early. Brian Anderson, our own Brian Anderson, the Don Corleone of Coog Center, joining us here on the podcast. Thank you, sir. Yeah, thanks, Michael. Dunderhead of the week time. Uh, just close out the Rio Olympics, and I'm like pretty positive that all of our Dunderheads have been from the Rio Olympics. 
Uh, and this week, I'm not going to go back and check. I'm too lazy. <laughs> this week uh, is no exception. Take a wild freaking guess who it is. I guess what I'm, what I'm trying to get at is the first version of the story you told Ryan was much more about the mean streets of Rio. Very mean yeah. streets. And the version we're hearing now is much more about a negotiated settlement mm -hmm. to cover up some dumb behavior. And that's why I'm taking full responsibility for it. Full responsibility. Full responsibility from Ryan Lochte. Even though he left the country before his teammates did, and one of his teammates, Jimmy Feagan, was made to pay an $11,000 fine to a quote-unquote charity that will probably never get the money. All because Mr. Lochte said they were held at gunpoint by people impersonating police, and as it turned out, they really needed to pee at a gas station, so broke into a bathroom, and a security guard pulled a gun on them, and told them they couldn't leave until they paid for the damage. Now that is a little... Not kosher, and I get being a little scared by that, but maybe call the real police, even though they are a little corrupt. Maybe contact the USOC at that time. Maybe don't lie to your mom about it, and then continue to lie for many days to investigative reporter Billy Bush. Ah, yes, Billy Bush. He was going to get to the bottom of it for the Today Show. What a moron. Here's the best part about... Lochte's interview, this, this is the part with about Lochte's interview with Matt Lauer that just like flattened me stupid. A, the fake crying, but here's here's the here's the really dumb part. You saw the news coverage of Not Matt Lauer Jack asking a question. being That's taken off that plane at the airport. And you knew, and you've just said to me, they didn't damage anything yeah. in that gas station. And, it, and you're sitting at home in the United States, safe and sound. How did it make you feel? Hurt? No, it didn't. I mean, I... I let my team down. Yes, you did. And, you know. No fake sniffles. I wanted to be there. Like, I don't want them to think that I left um, and left them dry. That's what you did, though. I mean, they were my teammates. I wanted to definitely be there. No, you didn't. And I wanted to help out any way I could. No, you didn't. And so I just wanted to make sure that they were home safe before I came out and talked. Was there a single moment of honesty in that little exchange there? Like a single, single one? <laughs> Dude, you were home safe and they got pulled off a plane in Brazil. Didn't know what was going to happen to them. And you were back home in the United States and there's no way in hell the U.S. was going to extradite you for whatever happened. Give me a friggin' break, Dude. Good God. Just like Hope Solo, let's be done with this guy. Hope Solo, that was the other one. And uh, that swimmer from Russia, too. Boy. Ask Michael anything, time. Ask Michael anything. We took last week off to give advice to freshmen who are now on campus, so congratulations on getting through the first few days. I've been first freshman year. Was, uh, first freshman class was 10 years ago. Alright, team old. First question from at WSHUCougar08, Rick Scott. Lowe's or Home Depot? Uh, really depends on which I have a gift card to as a new homeowner. Uh, right now I have a gift card to Home Depot, and it's a lot closer to my house, so I'm going with that. 
At Donnie Out West, Donnie Turnbaugh. I just ate a sandwich, so I have many sandwich questions. Best sandwich meat, best sandwich in Seattle, and is a hot dog a sandwich? We've answered number three on this show before, and I say no, not a sandwich. Best sandwich meat? I'm I'm a fan of salami sandwiches. Like I, I don't know why. I just probably the fat content and the meat I really like, and it goes really well with hot peppers and tomatoes and like an Italian vinaigrette on there. That's what I like. So I like salami. Maybe a little bit of an unconventional choice. And best sandwich in Seattle. I would say Paseo's, but I haven't been. The guy who like ran it and stiffed his workers on overtime wages, his sons opened like Unbien. I think it's uh, in Ballard or something. Uh, I apparently hear that's better than Paseo's. I have not been there. I will not make a choice. Uh, or, you know, like really... Uh, pick my side there yet, but I will say Paseo's for now without having to been to Umbien, but if they want to give me a free sandwich, I'm not going to oppose it. At Mr. Tommy G-Man, Leech said Gabe was happy like a kid who got a new bike when he was hurt. What kind of bike do you think he was talking about? An exercise bike that he was riding a lot, probably, when he was hurt. Uh, this relates back to our sandwich question. At Marie 13 Andrea Gonzalez, is the Tatch Strami the most perfect sandwich? If not, why are you wrong? I mean, I I like the pork sandwich at Paseo's a little better, but the Tatch Strami is just the perfect mix of everything, and if I really just want to destroy my diet for a day, it's the perfect sandwich. It really is. And I like the atmosphere of Tats a little bit better than Paseo's, where I'm so frequently having to eat off the tailgate of my car because there's no seating. They apparently opened up a really big one in a Soto with a ton of seating. Alright, I might be willing to go there. At JDub091, how many receptions, yards, and TDs will Cooper Cup have against WSU? Probably at least 10 or 12, 11 receptions. I'll say for close to 175 yards, and he'll probably score once or twice, so I'll say twice. I think that that's going to be an offensive game. I, don't, I think I read somewhere that Eastern's defense not very good. We'll find out a little bit more about him next week, though. Uh, at the real test, if I gave you 30 to 1 odds, would you let me bet me Joe Dahl makes a Pro Bowl? I would, yeah. I mean, he's good, but I don't know if he'll ever get to a Pro Bowl. I, I just, I don't know. Uh, at the Martin Party, defend Pullman. Do you have any celebration dance moves we've seen? Dabbing, the Dirty Bird, the Icky Shuffle, the Lynch Leap. What is yours? Mead's normally just clapping really loudly and incessantly or pounding the nearest table I can find. Does that count as a dance? That I, That's what it is. I, I don't dance. I am a chubby white man. I don't dance. At West Coast, Bias 11, greatest jersey number in sports. I'm biased in this situation again. I'm going to go with 24 because of Lynch, because of Griffey Jr., and a few others who I'm, I'm just having real trouble remembering because my memory is so excellent. I'm going to go with that, though. More Cooks and I are next week. Game week next week. We'll preview a little bit of Eastern Washington football, and uh, I can't wait. Cannot wait for next week here on the Cook Center Hour.